Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Vic. Just want to let you know this episode contains some strong language, so please be advised. In three, two, one. This past Christmas, a friend of mine got me this nutcracker. It looks like your standard nutcracker in a lot of ways. He's got a red coat and green pants, some gold accents and knee-high black boots. But there's something a little different about this guy. His eyes are closed. He's sitting down. And he's meditating. The stand that he sits on says, Namaste. When my friend gave it to me, he said, I saw it and thought of you and your hippie Buddhist peace on earth recovery shit. (laughs) And I totally get it. Since the start of my recovery journey from a longtime crack cocaine addiction in 2015, Buddhism has become a big part of my life. And it really started with a book called One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the 12 Steps. You see, this book was pivotal in my recovery. It came into my life at a time when I was starting to feel the benefits of sobriety. You know, physically I was feeling good, my head was clear, but spiritually I felt a certain emptiness. I got into a 12-step program and I was working the steps, but I got stuck on step number two. It says that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Even though I was raised Catholic, I just never connected with the standard Western definition of an all-knowing God. So, one day, a friend in the 12-step program recommended Buddhism. I was skeptical. That was for rich white people in Boulder, or so I thought at the time. But I decided to do some research. I went to Google and typed Buddhism in the 12 steps, and boom. The book was the first result. And once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. Reading this book became a form of unconscious meditation for me. And it was honestly like a total rewiring of my brain. Once I was able to let go of this confined idea of what spirituality or religion looked like, it set me free. One breath at a time was not only a game changer for me, it may very well have been a lifesaver. I still read it every year. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. Today, I'm speaking with the author of One Breath at a Time, Kevin Griffin. He had a similar struggle to mine, so I was excited to get a look inside Kevin's own recovery, what inspired him to write the book, and to learn about how he connected to spirituality on his course to sobriety. I love writing, and I love recovery, and I love the Dharma, Buddhism, and it just turned out that that uh, was a combination that the world had some need for. 
Well, I, I first want to thank you personally because it changed my life in a very profound way. You know, it changed the course of my recovery. And I'm curious how often people tell you the same kind of thing that your work has changed their lives. Uh, <laughs> often enough to make me feel good about it. Yeah. It's very moving to think that, you know, something I did really for myself, frankly, has turned out to be of benefit to a lot of other people. One Breath at a Time isn't just a pivotal book for me. It's a significant read in the recovery community. It's sold nearly 100,000 copies. And part of what makes it so effective is how relatable it is. Kevin's own struggles with addiction led him to Buddhism, which ultimately helped him get on the path to recovery. Kevin grew up in the 50s and 60s in an upper-middle-class household in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. But he says his family had a lot of problems. I was raised in a very, like, alcohol-saturated environment. But it was a very normalized, so it was like cocktail parties, you know? <laughs> and everybody looks good. And, you know, then my brothers started to have their problems one by one. So there was this dysfunction underlying everything. We all went to psychiatrists in those days, but that was sort of a cultural thing. You subscribe to the New Yorker and the New Yorker would have cartoons about seeing psychoanalysts. You know, it was like a, a whole like class thing. It's interesting. Well, why did you go? What were you struggling with? I started to experience depression mm. uh, before I ever had a drink which is an important part of my recovery story because it indicates to me that it, my depression wasn't caused by drinking and drugs. Yeah. It's another condition and it's something that I've had to deal with throughout my recovery. I know this may sound strange, but when I was able to say I'm depressed, for me, that was like a sign that I'm an adult now, like having a drink, right? Grownups drink and they get depressed. You know, I mean, that's, it's a pretty sad model, for, but that was kind of the, the model in my family. Well, Kevin, what did depression look like and feel like for you? You know, because it, it can manifest in a lot yeah. of different ways and depending on the person. What did it feel like when you were 14? It felt like when I get home from school, I just have to lie down on the couch and go to sleep. Mm. It felt like life is pointless that I hate school, I hate my family, that my only refuge is my guitar, you know. My only way of surviving in this world is going to be become a musician, then I'll escape. Kevin was constantly looking for that escape. At the very core of his depression was an emptiness that he couldn't define, much less fill. He went through a period of dropping in and out of high school and took solace in music. The dream of becoming a rock star became deeply ingrained in his identity. He went to therapy, which he says didn't do much. Kevin says his problems were seen as a weird mystery, and his doctor was like a cliché, the stoic, silent shrink. It was at this time that alcohol entered Kevin's life. When did you drink for the first time? Do you remember that experience? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> of course, who doesn't remember that? No, a good alcoholic doesn't remember their first drink. It was a seven and seven, you know, seven up and Seagram seven. And my brother Michael made it for me. And、uh, we were in the, what we called the library in our house. <laughs> And, uh, I love the upscaleness of, the, of these problems, right? Well, like, I know <laughs> the New Yorker cartoons and the library. Yeah, you, you know, it's so funny <laughs> looking back at it now through the lens of of privilege and understanding what just seemed like normal at that time, and seeing how much privilege there was in it, and there was a lot of snobbery that went along with that, of course.、Mm. But I had that seven and seven, and it was good. And I felt good, and it just was like, I need to do this. I think it was shortly after that I dropped out for the first time, <laughs> and I, I got a job mowing the lawn in the local cemetery right up the street. What I remember about that job, we had to push the mowers because it was like an old cemetery. We had to like maneuver between the different headstones. You know, a lot of my relatives were buried there, and.、Uh, I would be pushing, and I'd be calculating in my mind how many bottles of booze I could buy based on how many hours I'd worked that day. Oh wow! And that's I've learned now to understand that that's what we call alcoholic thinking. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was like really, that's what you're doing. Okay. Wow. So now you have this reward system playing out where you're doing hard、yeah. work and and you're measuring it in in bottles of booze. Yeah. What was it about booze? I mean, I'm, I'm, everyone knows what booze is like, <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Like for you at that time, you were、it? depressed and struggling.、Yeah. What did it do for you?、Mm. You know, it's that. It's just like this is where the fun is. You know, there's a lot to it, right? Because there's this rebellion in it. There's this being an adult. You know, one of my ways of sort of thinking about what happens to us as addicts is that as children we kind of see the world in magical terms, and then when we become teenagers, we realize that the world isn't magical anymore. But then, if we discover drugs and alcohol, it's like, oh, here's the adult magic. And it's that thing that's like, oh, so I can still have the magic of childhood. It just involves imbibing these intoxicants. And, and so it was very much that, just like this is this is cool. It's fun. It's what adults do. Alcohol became another band aid to try to patch up that depressive void. Kevin started drinking regularly during his high school years and soon got into marijuana. It wasn't long before he progressed to pills and speed. His mom and dad noticed that Kevin was constantly getting in trouble at school, and his time in therapy wasn't doing much to help his depression. They started to get concerned, and by the time he turned seventeen, Kevin says his parents were at a loss. And my parents, I feel so bad for them because. You know, they had these five sons who were beautiful people, but trying to raise them, and while、well, they're dropping out and getting in trouble and screwing up, and I'm number five, and they're just like done, and so they sent me to a mental hospital, a private mental hospital, only the best, you know, which actually turned out to be kind of my coming of age. It's where I wrote my first song and lost my virginity and、uh, <laughs> started to become. More of an adult. Interesting. How long were you there? A year. What was that experience like? <laughs> <laughs> it 
it, it was unique. The thing is, it was it was this private hospital in Philadelphia where they had an open part and then they had a locked part. And when I went in, I was in the open part. There were a bunch of young people. There was a drug dealer up the hall mm-hmm. and we were allowed to go out. So I would go to concerts, you know, saw Hendrix and the traffic and the band and various wow. bands. And, and, and then we'd get loaded and then we'd come back. And one night I like had a bad drug experience and I came back and they hit me up with Thorazine to bring me back down. But then at a certain point, my shrink decided I had like a conflict with him. He put me in the locked ward and that was really different. That's incredible to me. Like, did you think, Kevin, at that time when you were in that locked area that, wow, there's something wrong with me? There's something wrong. No, I thought there was something wrong with them. <laughs> Seriously, I did. So, and, so and you, even though you're in a mental hospital, you're you're like, why? What am I doing here? It's not right? my problem. I, yeah. I am no problem. No, I mean, I really did. You know, I want to get out, but at the same time, there was a pleasantness there. I fell in love. You know, there, and we had a band. You know, I'm writing music. By the time Kevin turned 19, the insurance money ran out, and he left that hospital. Being there did more to inspire him to become a musician than it did to help him overcome his issues with drugs and alcohol. After he left, Kevin started to pursue his music career seriously and played with multiple bands through his 20s. While he traveled and played music professionally, he lived his life mostly on the road or out of motels. The strange thing, Vic, is that in a way, being a musician saved me. Interesting. Because when you're playing in a club, you have to be conscious at one o'clock in the morning, (laughs) you know? And so I had to control it. The thing is, when I was between like 19 and 22, that's when I really came close to killing myself with drugs, where I was taking like quaaludes with booze and coke and everything just mixed together and just indiscriminate. But then my body couldn't handle it. So I would still drink, I would still binge, I would still have blackouts, but when I would, I would really pay the price. Yeah. But I do have a certain discipline. I never could just go completely out of control. You know, every addict has a different story. And I had a story that made it possible for me to be in denial for longer than I might have been. I could have easily gotten sober when I was 20. I mean, I, I needed it then, right? It was obvious that I was an alcoholic and an addict immediately. But because I was able to play that game and, and quote, control it, when I, except for when I didn't, you know, I was able to kind of go, well, I'm in control, right? No, but it makes sense because even though I've progressed in my drug use, Kind of like you, I did stay somewhat disciplined around other things. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had HIV. And so if I didn't take my medication every day, I, would, I, I wouldn't be here. Forget about drugs. I'd be dead by yeah. the other thing. But I always took care of that. I always yeah. took care of my medical needs around the virus. So I could relate to you in that you did what you had to do to, to stay disciplined while you were working. There's sort of a a model that I think is a false model, which is that you're just an addict or you're just an alcoholic. That's all of who you are. That defines you. And most of us have like kind of parallel lives. 
And for me, my parallel life was this spiritual search, which music was sort of the manifestation of that in a way, you know, music is a spiritual thing and, and wanting to be a musician, it expresses a spiritual longing, but there was also this more literal search where I was like, you know, I started meditating when I was 28 and I didn't get sober till I was 35. So there was, there was this longing for something. This was in the late seventies about 10 years after the Beatles went to India and helped popularize transcendental meditation. At the time, Kevin played guitar for an Afro-fusion band called Zebra. That's Zebra with two Zs, by the way. But Kevin still struggled with his depression and felt an absolute longing to understand life. He thought meditation could be the key to both. The underlying impulse really was the meditation is going to fix this depression thing. It's going to make me happy, but it's going to be this like bliss. You know, you just have these weird images, you know, of yogis in the Himalayas and somehow you're going to, who knows? I mean, it's just like, (laughs) it's so vague. But uh, yeah, it's just a fantasy. So essentially what I was thinking is it's going to be like the best drug you ever took and it's going to be free, you know. Yeah, you had lofty expectations. Oh yeah, absolutely. And they did not pay off because that's not how meditation works. (laughs) (laughs) Buddhism would become a tool that guided the rest of Kevin's life, but not before a wild cross-country road trip. We'll hear all about it after a quick break. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, All you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. When Kevin was in his late 20s, his band Zebra got close to making it big. Huge names in music like David Geffen and Leon Russell took an interest in the group. But the band leader, who also abused drugs and alcohol, always rejected record deals. Kevin didn't see a future with them, so he left and started to focus on Buddhist meditation. He spent a year going to meditation retreats, trying to find that transcendent bliss he always dreamed of. But he was unemployed still drinking and using drugs, and he didn't have a place to live. When he would return from retreats, all those problems were just waiting for him when he got back. So he decided to go all in and jump into his spirituality full time. When Buddhism wasn't working, I met this like strange figure of kind of like a homeless guru 
if you will, <laughs> who said I who said I should become homeless too, like him, if I wanted to become enlightened, and he would make me enlightened if I would come and like live on faith with him. So I did that. I by then I had kind of rebuilt my life over the course of six months. Had a job, had a band, you know, had a place to live, and I was like, oh, I'll get rid of all that because I need to get enlightened. So I go off hitchhiking and traveling around the country with this guy for a couple of months. And it was insane. I mean, we were living on faith, you know? What did living on faith look like with your homeless guru? It was not always great. <laughs> you know, the the one that really stands out in my mind, he, he dropped me off at I-25 north of Taos and said, uh, meet me back in Boston in three days. And he drove off. That means Kevin was stranded in northern New Mexico and had to find his way to the East Coast. By car, that's at least a 33-hour trip. Fortunately, I had my guitar because I found that when you're hitchhiking, a guitar is a good uh, thing that makes people feel safe. (laughs) (laughs) So I hitchhiked across the country and People gave me food and uh, a crash by the side of the road and made it to Boston. And then, you know, he would find somebody who had a car and some money and we would live out of a motel room. And it's, it, was, it was basically a low-rent cult. Kevin wasn't drinking much during this time, but he got fed up with his homeless guru. He moved back to California to rebuild his life. He slept on couches and even lived in a friend's van for a while. While struggling to find stable housing, he started drinking and using again. Eventually, he was able to get his own place. He got back into playing music. And finally, one night, Kevin knew it was time for a real change. You know, the last night of my drinking, we're in this cheesy club outside L.A., I'm making like 35 bucks a night, which was like bad money even 35 years ago. And after we'd gotten fired from the gig, the drummer I was playing with, who I really respected, he said as he was walking out the door, I remember now what I don't like playing in clubs. I hate drunks. And I was holding the Heineken in my hand. (laughs) Of course you were. (laughs) Oh, man. And I didn't think he was talking about me. But but he was. Yeah, yeah. When did that register? Uh, it registered right then. Uh, the yeah. next morning I, I was sober. I stopped just overnight. I don't know what happened beyond that, you know. It was like, it was an accumulation, right? It was like, I'd started thinking about, am I an alcoholic? Then I tried to control it. Then it got worse and worse and worse. Then my life was really messed up and I wasn't getting anywhere. So really in my mind, this is what was happening. I've done everything else. I've tried therapy. I've tried Buddhism. I've tried music. I've tried relationships. None of these things have fixed me. Maybe this stupid sobriety thing will work. You know. <laughs> Kevin found that meditation helped him a lot in those early days of sobriety. He says having a daily practice and the discipline it requires helped ease the process of becoming newly sober. 
He also started to understand and appreciate meditation for what it was, not some magical gateway to understand the meaning of life, but rather a way to be present in his life. After a year without drinking, he decided to join a formal recovery program. He got a sponsor and started attending meetings regularly. So how did your view of happiness change from from when you were a musician to when you were not just becoming sober, but actively participating in a program? What I realized was that my happiness wasn't contingent on the things that I thought it was contingent on. It wasn't contingent on being a musician or being anything in particular, you know, that that identity was not necessary. It wasn't contingent on being in a relationship, you know, that I could be single. So I realized like happiness is just like right here, you know, it's like, it's, it's in being alive and being connected with people. Well, Kevin, so tell me about becoming a writer and, mm. and when you decided to write one breath at a time. Buddhism in the 12 steps. Yeah. At three years sober, I realized, oh, I I always identified as, I'm a high school dropout. And as weird as that is, that was like, cool. Like, I'm a high school dropout who had to go to a mental hospital and I'm a rock musician. Like, okay, that's who I am. That's pretty cool. I'm a rebel. (laughs) I'm a badass, you know. And then I was like, you know, I'm 38. The music career is not happening. It's not going to happen. And I noticed these other people in the program go to school. Like, could I go to school? So I go to my sponsor. I'm like, I was thinking about going back to college, but you know, it'd take four years to get a degree. And he was like, yeah. And in four years, you're going to be four years older. And you can either have a degree or not have one. So I was like, oh, that's that sounds like some of that AA wisdom right there, <laughs> you know? And my first English class, I'm just like writing and I'm like really having fun. It's great. At the end of the class, the teacher says, do you ever think about being a writer? And I just started writing and I just fell in love with it. And of course, sucker that I am, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a novelist now, <laughs> you know, because I'm like, I can be a rock star. I'll be, I'll be a novelist. That's good. So I kind of set off on another like, you know, illusion that like, oh, now I've got this heroic thing that's going to happen to me. But it did, you know, I wrote that novel, didn't get published, but I got into grad school, creative writing, wrote another novel, didn't get published, (laughs) finished grad school. I was broke, in debt, (laughs) had to get a job, look for jobs with the title writer in them. So I became a technical writer. Now I'm like 10 years, 11 years, 12 years sober. And I know, like we were talking about, like, it's okay. You know, I realized, oh, I invested again in an identity that I thought was going to fix me. And I need to let go of that because I'm happy, you know, and I'm very serious about my Buddhist practice. And then I'm invited into a teacher training program. I start teaching and right away, recovery kind of slips into my talks. And I actually remember like apologizing for that. Like, oh, I know you people don't want to hear about that. But after one night, early in this process, somebody comes up and says, yeah, I want to hear about that. I'm, I'm in the program too. Wow. So I start to realize that there, was, there were other people like me. I'm not the only sober Buddhist. Yeah, and it was purely accidental. Yeah, totally. I love how you talked about it. It's how 
you know, you, we had all these things in our mind that we yeah. think will make us happy. Yeah. And so I, you had this plan to be a musician and then, Ooh, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write yeah. a novel. Yeah. It wasn't until you let go of those things. Right. Exactly. It seems counterintuitive. You know, once I've stopped plotting out this scene of happiness around me and just staying present, then maybe something's going to happen. <laughs> and it yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Basically after 9-11, I lost my tech writing job. And my wife, who's an English professor who thinks like this, said, why don't you consider this to be a sabbatical? I was like, a sabbatical. <laughs> Great. I like that. I'll go for that. Take unemployment for a while and write your book proposal. She's a great editor. So I was trying to get it started and I would write, write some, I'd print it out. I'd run upstairs to her office, hand it to her. She'd be like, read it. She'd come down. No, that's not it. Keep, keep going. And she guided me to find the voice. And, you know, I had had novels out to agents and collected rejections and, you know, and, and gone to writers conferences and tried to connect. As soon as I wrote this book proposal, I get an agent, they sell it. You know, it's like, oh, oh, that's great. This is the thing I was supposed to be doing. Kevin's book explores many facets of Buddhism and explains how mindfulness and other practices can enhance more traditional recovery programs. And that was absolutely the case for me. When I got stuck on that second step, God was no friend of mine. Or so I thought, after everything I went through in my life. Kevin's book really helped the God medicine go down easier, so to speak. And that's part of the reason the book paired so well with my program. Kevin says there's a concept at the very core of Buddhism that mirrors a concept in 12-step recovery. What makes Buddhism such a natural fit for recovery is that right in the core teaching of Buddhism is the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is the truth that there is suffering, but the second truth is the key, which says that our suffering is really caused by our craving and by our clinging. And that, of course, makes it a partner of addiction. It's, it's defining almost that our lives are almost defined by addiction. It's the constant craving of addiction. It's, yeah. the, it's the ultimate form of suffering. Yeah. So then the third noble truth, though, says that if we stop craving, that there, that's, there's freedom. And so, wow, okay, that's what, that's what we want to know. That's, you know, in the 12 steps, that's saying we came to believe that the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'll put the power aside for now, but just to say that it's saying, yeah, we can be restored to sanity. And Buddhism says the same thing. And then the fourth truth is the path that gives us the tools. And, and so it's very similar in that way to the, the steps in terms of being very practical and about life itself. It's not esoteric. It's not metaphysical. Let's talk about God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the God issue as it relates to the 12 steps, you know, that's a common barrier. Yeah. As you know, that people put up when it comes to the 12 steps. I'll often hear people say, well, I know I need help, but I don't want to sit in a meeting and talk about God. Yeah. And some people go a step further and say they're against any, they're against religion or whatever. And mm -hmm. now the 12 steps says it's not a religious program, obviously, but 
there are a lot of references to Christianity <laughs> in the yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous book. Let's be real. For sure. Please talk, because this, this is really important. Please talk about how using Buddhism as a companion can help people deal with that God part. Yeah. Besides the fact that I wanted to teach meditation to people in recovery, this is the second big reason why I wanted to do this work. The obstruction that I saw people had with God and the, my sense that you could use Buddhism as a way to work with that. And, and I will say, because this is such a deep and broad topic, that my second book called A Burning Desire, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery, is totally about this. And yeah. it, it took a whole book for me to explain my thinking about it. So I, I will try to do so in less than book length form here for you. <laughs> Cliff Notes version of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. just <laughs> so it comes down to fundamentally Dharma as God. And so then you have to understand what is Dharma. <laughs> so the Dharma refers to essentially the teachings of the Buddha, although it has a broader meaning of just truth, kind of spiritual truth. So uh, the idea for me is that if I turn my will in my life over to the power of the Dharma, then what I'm doing is I'm trying to follow or live in accordance with these teachings, which are things like mindfulness. I'm going to try to turn my will in my life over to the power of mindfulness. I'm going to try to turn my will in my life over to the power of loving kindness, of right action, you know, of right intention, of right effort. So the key, it seems to me, to God in the steps is that we recognize that we're talking about powers greater than ourselves. And the problem for addicts is that we try to be that power or that we fight the powers that yeah. exist, that are unfightable. And the process is really one in which we try to live in harmony and let go of the results, let go of controlling. And that's why my story, as you were kind of pointing out, was realizing like when I was trying to make myself into a rock star or mm -hmm. into a novelist and the world was pushing back, it's because I wasn't really moving in harmony with what needed to happen. And when I started to just show up and do what was in front of me and what the world was calling for, then everything kind of played out much better. So it's, it's really about this kind of non-conflict with the world and trying to just do the next right thing. Of course, that means you have to figure out what that is, you know, what, what's right. But, but it basically means you don't have to leap and just take a small step, just take the next step. Like, as we know, it's like, just don't drink or use today. Yeah. You know, just do the, the little steps and then things unfold. You know, we often hear addiction talked about like it's a battle. Like when someone says, I have a friend who is battling addiction, or a loved one has lost their battle with addiction. When I turned to Buddhism in my recovery journey, I realized that the more we try to fight our addiction, to go to war or battle with our drug and alcohol use, we'll always lose. It's in surrender when we stop fighting, that our recovery starts. And through Buddhism, I learned that surrender is not the same as giving up. As Kevin puts it in one breath at a time, 
The great irony in this process is that only in surrender do we grow. Oh, and by the way, that little meditating nutcracker, it's still in my living room well after Christmas. That's one thing I haven't surrendered. Kevin Griffin continues to teach Buddhism and write books about mindfulness and recovery. In fact, his latest book builds on One Breath at a Time. It's called Buddhism in the Twelve Steps, Daily Reflections. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with addiction, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find it. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producer today was Rebecca Romberg, and you could find a list of all the folks who worked hard to make this episode in the show notes. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members, Learn more about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org.